Another great question from at Coach Kiki. That's at Coach K-I-K-I. She wants me to muse about transpersonal psychology. Just a little background. Uh, my master's degree was in counseling psychology with a transpersonal specialization. As part of my graduate work, I studied the conventional or more mainstream schools of thought, object relations and self-psychology, cognitive behavioral therapy, psychodynamic psychotherapy, family systems. Um, and I had to learn most or all of those just for licensure purposes in the state of California. Um, but my specialization was in transpersonal psychology. And transpersonal psychology has quite a few different definitions. And I'm going to tap in, uh, you know, drop into a few of them, not necessarily in great, great detail, but just to kind of give you a flavor of waves of conceiving of transpersonal psychology. The thing that was most interesting to me originally was the study of non-ordinary states of consciousness. So consciousness, we, we have waking, when you're awake throughout the day, and you interact with an objective world. You have dreaming, when you're in dream states at night. Uh, and then you have a state where there is no dream that's going on. You pretty much don't exist. There's more to it than that, but you know it's deep sleep. And your conscious self is, is not active and you're not in a dream state. But let's just say for argument's sake you have waking and dreaming as the two main states of consciousness throughout the day. Now in ordinary states recognizes a third option, which can be induced from a number of different in interventions in one's psychology or physiology from psychedelics to meditation to fasting to uh, various types of sensory deprivation, whether it's a tank or in a cave. Um, it can happen spontaneously. It can happen through prayer. You know, the, the various spiritual systems of all the religious systems have practices which are intended to alter your consciousness, to expand your mind, to open your heart, to free your body. And those practices can, in fact, uh, give you access to non-ordinary states of consciousness, also in the earlier days called altered states of consciousness. And the, these are states where you have access to information which is, uh, I would say, post-biographical, or, or to the depth of your own biography that you were not even aware of. And what I mean by post-biographical um, St Dr. Stan Groff, he's a psychedelic researcher who created a concept called holotropic breathwork, mapped out through his hundreds and thousands of psychedelic sessions that he ran in Czechoslovakia in the 50s and then at the Maryland Psychiatric Research Institute in the 60s uh, before LSD was criminalized here in the States. You know, he was an above-board psychiatrist uh, doing research discovered that under in with the use of LSD or other psychedelics, but I think it's primarily LSD, and through the use of holotropic breath work, individuals can access their birth, which is pretty fascinating to think about. And they ha and he has the concepts of uh, um, four different type of birth experiences. I'm not going to go into detail with them now, but depending on what your experience was in the birthing process, kind of sets the stage for you psychodynamically and biographically in terms of how you respond to your environment. But access to your birthing experience is not something that you could do in a, in a normal state of consciousness. It's only through non-ordinary states where you'd have access to that type of experience, if in fact you believe that it's possible. Um, 
as and people through non-owners, non-ordinary uh, states of consciousness, also have inf access to information. Allegedly, I think this is true, but uh, you know, I put in quotes allegedly because a lot of people poo-poo this. Uh, to information that's not available on a day-to-day -day basis, and should not be available to you as a functioning human being at a very specific time and space. So what I mean by that is, I'll go back to Dr. Stan Groff. He was doing LSD research in the 50s in Czechoslovakia, you know, a communist state, communist police state. And he had patients who had experiences which he later confirmed to be encounters with deities from Hinduism. And these are people who normally, and in that, in that time and place, would not even have access, to, you know, there's no internet, they didn't have access to books, they didn't know anything about Hinduism, they didn't know the great detail of the different deities in Hinduism to, to lay it out so clearly to Dr. Groff. So people in non-oriented states can have access to encounters with all kinds of beings which one might say are not available in daily consciousness. Um, what they are, are they gods, are they deities, are they creatures of one's imagination, you know, that can be debated. But the fact that a wide variety of people have access to those encounters from a wide variety of cultures is interesting and says something about the human psyche. Uh, in the more transpersonal world, um, especially looking at someone like um, uh, Jung, Carl Jung, you, you'd have things like the collective unconscious. Um, and you'd have people who can access the collective unconscious. And in the collective unconscious would be these various religious or spiritual um, entities, which provide us with guidance or with information uh, about ourselves and how we should live in the world. Um, um, as I said earlier, people might poo-poo that and say it's just the imagination, the drugs are just happening to the imagination of the mind, or the prayer is just happening to the imagination of the mind, perhaps. I don't, I don't think it's just that, because it's too widespread and cross-cultural. Um, and then in terms of uh, one's own biography, um, you know, we have a certain experience of ourselves, like how we identify ourselves, how we think about ourselves. Um, and in many or most cases, the way we live um, is driven by subconscious or unconscious programming. Some of it's verbal, verbally induced, you know, encounters with our parents, if you had parents, uh, your mother, father, or other caregivers. Um, or, you know, encounters in the environment when we're really young that might be pre-verbal, that set us up for our nervous system to function in certain ways. So with that in mind, you know, the, uh, the non-ordinary states can give you access to and more clearly seeing those situations which set you up to act later down the road in a certain way. Um, and you can see it more clearly and you can see it differently. So it's almost like reliving, quote-unquote, the trauma or the interaction, but you're doing it in a much more freer way. Um, where you're not re-traumatizing yourself, and in fact you're un-traumatizing yourself. And what's fascinating about you know using some of the non-ordinary states to access these experiences um, is that the trauma can be relived. I mean, you you can actually get physically what, whatever happened to you physically can re-emerge, uh, but it moves through you. And, you know, it's like an energetic that uh, is no longer stuck in your body. It moves freely through you. And your body just kind of throws it up. And I don't, I mean, it could literally throw it up, but I don't just mean throw it up as in like you're, you're nauseous and you throw it up, but your body just gets rid of the energetic that's stuck. 
uh, in the musculature and the nervous system um, that's causing, or not causing, but contributing to you reacting in a certain way to various situations in your future life. So it's just, you know, it's kind of fascinating to think that uh, not ordinary states can give you access to that kind of information biographically, but deep biography, uh, and allow you to pretty much rework it in such a way that, I'll give you an example. So I knew of someone who used MDMA, 3,4-methylene-dioxamethamphetamine. Uh, it's now being studied for the use of PTSD. Um, it was criminalized, I think, in 1995 but by the DEA. Um, but before they did that, it was actually being used in couples counseling. And I knew of a case of uh, someone who, using MDMA in a therapeutic setting, so, you know, proper set, mindset, setting, and stuff, um, had an encounter in their mind's eye with their mother. And they had a really, really bad relationship up to that point with their mother for various reasons. And they saw their mother actually as a little girl being injured in such a way, emotionally, that caused her to be the type of person she was later in life. So this person, seeing, seeing her mother in a new way as an injured party, as someone who herself was emotionally abused, um, had compassion. Like she, she had compassion for the first time in life for her mother, which then had, gave her permission to have compassion for herself because she too was in some sense a victim of her mother who was a victim of her mother. You know, it's an intergenerational pattern. But because she was able to kind of separate herself, see it in a new way, is reframed. And it wasn't just reframed cognitively. It wasn't that she was just thinking about it. I mean, it was reframed experientially in a deep, profound way. And, uh, you know, the, the anger and the hate that she held for her mother just dissipated. And she was then able to approach her mother in new and insightful ways. And not to say that she should she forgave completely what her mother had done to her, but she was no longer holding on so tightly to what her mother had done to her. And that's just an example of you know how non-ordinary states, uh, in this case induced by MDMA, but it could be induced by you know uh, non-drugs as well, as I mentioned, certain breathing practices or sensory deprivation or prayer or meditation, et cetera, et cetera, can give you access to deep biographical information. So you're able, transpersonal is being able to transcend the personal. So in this case, your personal is your, your strict identity of who you, who you think you are, how you experience yourself, and your behaviors. And being able to transcend that limitation, in this case with this woman with her mother, gives her a new lease on life. You know, she's re-identifying herself in a new way. She's no longer the victim of her mother. She's a free adult female who's able to operate in the world differently now. And, that's able to, and that is an example of transpersonal. She's transcending the personal identification of who she was previous to this session. Um, so, you know, the non-ordinary states are really cool. Um, the, looking at the spiritual systems is a way of conceiving of transpersonal psychology. You know, Kabbalah in Judaism, the Desert Fathers in Christianity, Sufism in Islam... Uh, Tibetan Buddhism, shamanism, you know, all the different religious systems have their spiritual practices. Um, and then another way to conceive of transpersonal psychology is it can be the higher stages of particular lines of development. And what I mean by that is, you know, we go through uh, certain stages of moral development. I think Kohlberg uh, recognized three stages. Uh, uh, 
self-centric, ethnocentric, and world-centric are the three general stages. Um, and the transpersonal school would suggest that you know it's great to transcend your ego self and recognize that you're part of a tribe or a group. It's great to re you know transcend the tribe or group identification, recognize that you're part of the human species. Each step upward, you're expanding who you are. You're transcending yourself. So that's kind of transpersonal. And you can go beyond your species. In, in the uh, Buddhist system, they had the Bodhisattva vow, which is a recognition of that you, you will stay here until all sentient beings are freed, not just human beings. So you can go beyond world-centric, and not just about your species, but all life, all conscious sentient beings. Um, <clears throat> and you can say that transpersonal psychology is not just uh, higher stages of any kind of line like uh, like I said, morally, you might even say that it could be its own line. You might call it care and compassion. Um, you know, where your care and compassion is beyond you, beyond your group, beyond your species, you know, further and further up, you know. Um, but you're able to transcend the limitations of your own ego, your own needs, your own desires, your own aspirations. And not to say any of those are bad, they're, they're great, you need those things. But, uh, you know, if you're able to transcend them and see that other people around you, you know, you're kind of interdependent with them and that their health and wellness and, and, and um, uh, thriving in their lives is, is as important to you as your own. And you live in such a way that, you know, you want to help others uh, live more fully in a thriving type of way. So that could be like a line of its own kind of care and compassion for, for either all, all human beings or all sentient beings. There's other ways of conceiving a transpersonal psychology, but I've, I'm long the tooth. <laughs> so let me leave it at that, uh, Kiki. Hopefully it answers uh, your questions. If you have any more, uh, feel free to ask. I'll wait for a tweet or a text or something from you. And if uh, other folks want to learn more about some of my work, you can check out my blog, michaeldostrolink.com. And you can also check out my radio show where I interview some really cool people. That's AustraLinkRadio.com, O-S-T-R-O-L-E-N-K, radio. Thanks.